All right. It's funny. I, I wasn't going to use the, the spray bottle like I did last week. If you weren't here, I am going to use it today for something because it kind of made sense. And I ran over in the middle and I grabbed it and brought it back. So I didn't realize last week. I just left it sitting right there. That's kind of nifty. Anyway, uh, I have two things for you. First off is if you gave to Element last year in a way that we could track uh, so you can write it off your taxes. Kara is around this morning handing your giving statements out. So if you gave in a week of track last year, you can get one of these. It actually, it's, it's a way to save money so we're not mailing them out. So it saves us stamps. And stamps are like a $100 a stamp right now. No, I don't know how much they are, but... Uh, so you can grab one of those from her. If you did give and you haven't gotten one, uh, find her. She'll be out in the foyer right out there, and she'll hand you yours. Uh, if, if we don't get it to you by next week, we will end up mailing them to you. But if you can, just grab it. It saves us a little bit of money. Uh, the second thing kind of goes along with that in just a little, little bit of the way. Uh, next week, for some of you who love like charts and graphs and information and stuff like that, next week is your holiday Sunday for the entire year because we are having our annual business meeting. Woo! So much fun. So if that's you, uh, show up next Sunday at 1 p.m. for the business meet. Uh, we're going we're gonna to go through our budget for the coming year. We're going to go through some of the bylaws and stuff like that. We're also going to give you some updates about what we're looking at, our vision and plans for the future and things that we're doing. A little update from Jonathan Whitaker and Element Colorado Springs. Uh, and then you at the end can ask some questions if, if you would like. Keep them relevant, okay? Just keep them relevant. Don't be like, how come you use this font on this piece of paper? We don't know. We don't care. All right? Just but keep them relevant. And you can ask any questions you want other than the font type on the paper. All right. Hey, welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. If you lost it, you can have another one. On all the communion tables throughout the room, there are these sermon notes. You can grab a set of that. On the inside, you'll get some uh, words that kind of take you deeper into what we're talking about, as well as some questions that kind of walk you through what we're going through today. Uh, these are for you to talk to your friends about. Uh, maybe there's somebody else who is with you today. If you're in a gospel community, you get to go through those as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Ecclesiastes 1.1, and it's very short. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust the words that you have said, and that we would be those who look in the world around us with open eyes of wonder to see the things that you are doing, and that we would understand the difference between what we seek after in our lives and what you have done by seeking after us as our great God who rescues us. So teach us to live out ways in this world that reflect your glory as we live in the great grace that you have provided. Amen. Have a seat. All right, 2019, we're almost done with January of 2019. We're like two-thirds of the way through. I don't know. This year's going to go by so... I feel like the older I get, the faster things go. Anyway, uh, we're doing the book of Ecclesiastes. If you didn't know, this is our second week in the book. It is one of the strangest books in the entire Bible. Some people love this book, and I think it's because they don't understand it. Uh, I love this book. 
and I think it's because maybe I don't understand it, so I'm going to pass on my ignorance to you. You're welcome. Uh, No, seriously, Ecclesiastes is really a strange book because it gives uh, voice to all the experiences that are not usually shown in what's called the wisdom literature. It's going to look at life's injustices and absurdities. Sometimes people have asked, you know, why this finds itself as part of the scriptures. I told you last week there was even a Bible teacher I once heard. Someone asked them a question about Ecclesiastes, and because they couldn't answer the question, they said, well, it's just not an inspired book. Well, I believe Ecclesiastes is an inspired book, and the writer will spend most of his time pointing out the inefficiency of human deeds and the limitations of our own personal righteousness, and yet also in the end point to that there's a God who's all-powerful and righteous and sovereign. Some people, when they look at Ecclesiastes, will say, okay, great, it's inspired, it's in the Bible, but how about we just ignore it and don't ever look at it? Kind of like how we treat the book of Revelation sometimes. It's like, I know it's there, I don't want to read it. One day, I am going to take you through Revelation. I'm going to make all of you mad, because it's not going to, I'm not going to do it like anybody thinks. I'm going to it's not the Western interpretation of it. I'm going to go, you don't care. Anyway, uh, Ecclesiastes, the writer of the book calls himself Koheleth. And that means, uh, translates as teacher. The ESV says the preacher. In English, uh, really what it would translate most to is a member of the assembly. Uh, so it's, that's where you get the word Ecclesiastes because it's Ecclesiastical. And so what he's saying is that he is the teacher, but he's also one of us. That's what he's trying to say. Again, the English Standard Version, which we use at Element, it calls him the preacher. And the reason I think sometimes the book looks so strange to us is it doesn't seem like there's a lot of preaching in the book. Uh, Like, I'm a preacher, not a great one, right? But at least that means I try to provide answers that are centered upon the gospel. This guy who calls himself the preacher, which I think has got to be a bad translation, because if he's a preacher, he's a complete failure because he never really provides any answers. He just asks more and more and more questions. Now, Tim Keller, who I love doesn't write a lot about the book of Ecclesiastes, but what he did say is he thinks the title for this guy really should be the philosophy professor, because this preacher, this teacher has an approach to teaching that all he really does is ask questions. Uh, It's more like Socratic dialogue. He's like a discussion leader, and so the book of Ecclesiastes is only understandable when you begin to see it that way, like a bunch of questions and not answers. And so the preacher's job in Ecclesiastes is to push us to find those answers. And Ecclesiastes, when he's time is not the place where you find those answers, the rest of the scriptures are. So it's pushing us to read and to understand the rest of the scriptures. And so this guy's job pushes us to the logical conclusion of our weird positions in life, so much so by the time you get to the end of it, you start to have a headache about it. And that's why we're calling the series the existential hangover, because really that's what it's like. Uh, we want to be able to push boundaries and say, why do you believe that? Because most people don't ever do that in their lives. They don't ask the questions that matter most, really about what they believe. Now, Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 2. As you do that, I'm going to tell you, I think that the book of Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. There's a lot of debate on that. But I think Solomon is one of the richest and wisest, and he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, so you can call that whatever that is. He's that guy that really ever lived. Ecclesiastes 1.1 says, The words of the preacher, Solomon, son of David. He's like, that's my dad, king in Jerusalem. So David was this guy who was king before Solomon. David was called a man after God's own heart. But if you read through David's life, you see all the places where David stumbled and he fell. Uh, a lot of places he was really a kind of like a crooked deviant in his life. At one point, he's seen his uh, man's wife who is naked on a roof apart from him uh, taking a bath. He sees her. He likes her. He brings her over. He has sex with her. He impregnates her, and he tries to pawn it off on her husband. And when he can't do that, he has that husband killed. Uh, that is 
not a good thing. I know it's in the Bible, but you don't do everything in the Bible like Judas portrayed Jesus. Don't portray Jesus. Okay, you know, it's in there because it's telling you what kind of happened with him. And so later David repents of his sin, and he has a son by this woman named Bathsheba named Solomon. And on his deathbed, David appoints Solomon to be king after him. We covered this right before Christmas. And this is what David tells Solomon. First Kings 2, 2 through 4, he says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. I'm going to die. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Let me paraphrase what he says. He says, keep your nose in the scriptures, keep your heart close to God, and do what God says. And if Solomon would have listened, his life would have turned out much differently, but then we also wouldn't have gotten the book of Ecclesiastes. So, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. God loved David and Solomon so much that at one point he says to Solomon, ask me for one thing and I will grant it to you. Now, I, I mentioned this before. We'd be people who ask for, like, money and power and fame, uh, being a little more attractive. Uh, you know, I, I, we were talking in our gospel community this week, and one of my friends, Nick, we were talking about, you know, what would make you feel more, more fulfilled? And he's got to drive to a Tascadero every day for work, and he goes, my own lane on the freeway. So, yeah, so how about that? You could ask for anything. How about if you've got to go to L.A., your own lane on the 405? That would be just wonderful. Uh, bigger muscles, more wishes. Made a prototype for the new iPhone. We all have something we'd ask for, right? Solomon chooses wisdom. He chooses wisdom, and it so pleases God that he didn't ask for his own lane on the 405 or bigger muscles and didn't ask for power or fame, that God eventually gives Solomon a 40-year reign as the wisest, richest, most powerful man almost, I think, in the history of the earth. Uh, Solomon contributes to three books in the Bible. He pens 1,005 psalms. He writes 3,000 proverbs. And because of that, you may think, I can't relate to this guy. But seriously, he comes from a messed up family. He starts following God. He made some messed up choices that messed up his life and all that he really wanted to accomplish. So he does kind of relate to us. He starts by following God, but not completely. Like Solomon doesn't take his worship of God seriously. And so he takes all these different things from all these pagan religions around them and mixes that with his worship, much like we do in America. Uh, he, he married lots of women he shouldn't have. That would be any more than one. Okay, uh, Little compromises lead to long-term grave consequences. Uh, many of these women worship different gods, and that influenced Solomon to participate in religions, one of which practiced child sacrifice. You see this in 1 Kings 11. And by the end of his life, as I said, Solomon had 700 wives. Guys, I don't know any guy who could handle 700 wives. Can you imagine that? I mean, guys have a problem with just one. I don't have enough quality time. We never go out anymore. Imagine 700. It's like, yeah, well, I'll get to you in two and a half years. How's that going to go over? <laughs> not well, not well. He's got 300 concubines, right? Concubines is not farm equipment. It's like a girlfriend on the side. So as Driscoll once said, uh, Solomon Ecclesiastes says, is honest and bored and burnt out the end of a crooked life with a head full of insight and a heart full of sadness. And I think what he does is he sits down in wisdom, I think, to write Ecclesiastes as repentance to God and a warning to the rest of us. That's what comes about. So I'm going to briefly go through the verses I want to talk to you about today. That's verses 2 through 11 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And when I was writing this, I kind of went back and forth to talk to you out of the 
NIV, that's the New International Version, or the English Standard Version, of which one to kind of read these verses to you out of. Now, if you don't know anything about Bible translations, Bible translations aren't a translation of a translation of a translation. They go back to the original manuscripts, but they have a different focus in how they translate. Like the New International Version is what we call a thought-for-thought translation. And so it looks at the passages that are there, and it brings about this idea of the thoughts that are behind it. Many times in things like Ecclesiastes, it's very useful because Ecclesiastes is poetry. And many times when you do a word-for-word translation, which is the English Standard Version, you don't get all the poetry behind it. And so I'm going to kind of flip-flop between these two. If you do are using version, uh, when I go back and forth, those are both in there. You're welcome. Uh, Sarah did that for you this week, so you can thank her for that. I wasn't thinking that. I was like, they'll just figure it out, but she's really nice to you. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2 says, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, that's out of the NIV. The English Standard Version, we use the word vanity. Vanity, vanity, says the preacher. This is what we talked about last week. And this word meaningless here, it means a vapor or mist or that life is like wind. And that's why I used this little bottle sprayer. And I said, this is, he's talking about this. Life is your life. Okay? You're welcome. That's what it's like. It's like this mist. It's this vapor that, that kind of goes away and doesn't hang out. You ever feel like that? You get up in the morning. What am I doing? I, I can't wake up. My hair's not working. i got to go to work. What's going on? It's all frustrating. Uh, the Hebrew word for meaningless is this word called havel, and it takes place 38 times in the book. And It's that life can be frustrating and empty and meaningless and a vain waste of time that quickly passes us by. It's like you start off as you're born, you are helpless and mumbling and wearing a diaper, and eventually if you live long enough, you will go to the same point. You'll be helpless and mumbling and wearing a diaper. You start one way, you end the same way. There. Meaningless. I already broke it. Crazy. That's, that, that's, that's, that's what he's saying there. Uh, verse 3. This is out of the English Standard Version. What does a man gain from all his toil? That's the word labor or work at which he toils under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. This is you're born. You start to grow up, so you play, and then you go to school, and then eventually you get out of school, and you work, and you get married, and buy a house, and mow your lawn, and pay your bills, and you hurry and hurry and hurry, and then one day you are going to die. And they will pay you up like a circus clown and stick you in a box and bury you, and other people get all the stuff that you worked for. Okay, that, that's what he's saying. And I told you last week that this idea of under the sun, it's referring to this life, that which we create. The teacher says, if you work only for what is here, then what's the point? There is no gain. And what every generation thinks is that they're so much more advanced than the generation that came before it. And we look at those people and say, if they just did it like us, the world's problems would all be fixed at this point. And yet we die, and the world is still here, and the dust of the earth mocks us because it lives on after us. The dust of the earth outlives us. One commentator says it's like metaphorically, we're all riding an exercise bike. You know, they don't go anywhere, you just pedal all the time, and we're pedaling for all we're worth, and then this generation dies and falls off, and the next generation walks up and says, you didn't get anywhere, but we're going to pedal harder. And so they get on and start doing the exact same thing, and we all live in denial thinking we're more important than we actually are. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. That's the round and around. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. It is circular, repeating movement. It is not progress. The sun is there. We go around the sun, the clouds. Life is a rut. It's meant to be depressing. It's meant to get you to the end of this to be like, oh my goodness, what is the meaning of life? It's meaningless. And no matter what you think, we are all pretty boring people. 
Makes you kind of insane. Verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. Again, all things are wearisome. And so we keep looking for things. and Our eyes are never satisfied, and our ears are never satisfied. There are really no new ideas in the world. We think there are because we went to schools that taught us politics and outrage, but not history. And Solomon says, all these people, they're silly because most new things are not new things. They're simply old things that we have just forgotten about, and they've been rediscovered. Like, like cool now is the vintage store. I'm, I was wearing this, this track jacket, and it, and it looks like it's out of the 70s, but everybody thinks, hey, that's new. Well, it's not really new. It's just coming back around again. We think we are so amazing. It's like, we put a man on the moon. Isn't that amazing? A man on the moon. The moon is a rock in outer space, inhospitable to human life. Oh, but we put a man on it. Okay, well, what are you going to do with that? You know, what are we going to do with that? I mean, you know where Neil Armstrong is? Dead. He's, he's in a box in the ground. He's dead. Oh, but Elon Musk, he's going to take us to Mars. Mars is inhospitable to human life. Oh, but it's going to be so amazing. It'll be dead before, we'll be dead before we see anything like that ever happen. But we can look at the Hubble Space Telescope, and we can see these stars billions of light years away. You know what those stars are by now? Dead. That's what those stars are. Do you feel the existential hangover? That's what he's trying to get you to. Like, we join causes in this world to make a difference, and that's a good thing. We should do that, but in the end, we will all die because of sin. We are going to be plant food. Some vegetarians are really excited about that. The plants feed me, I'll feed the plants. Whatever. (laughs) Verse 11. I actually had a joke that went with that, but it fell flat first service, so I'm not telling you the joke. (laughs) Verse 11. You are horrible. (laughs) Verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things unless I offend you really bad. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet among those who come after. What he's saying is only people who are really skilled in like self-delusion can protest that their life is going to be different. Well, I'm going to work hard. I'll make a difference. I'll be significant. All of us are skilled in thinking all of these things, and yet the older we get, the more we realize we're not really making a difference at all. We typically only make the news when you were born and when you die, unless you do something really catastrophic in the middle of it, that's it. There is no new ideas. There is no progress. We're not that important. Is that depressing? Yes, it's supposed to be. It's like, why did I even come here today? This is terrible. Uh, Herman Melville, who wrote the book Moby Dick, uh, he called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. And he said you could trust it because of the sorrow that's actually found in it. And this teacher, this philosophy professor, is making us ask questions that philosophers have wrestled with for ages. And he shows us that the questions that get asked, we have to ask the rest of the scripture so we can understand the beauty and the power of the gospel. And the main question asked in those first 11 verses is stated in verse 3. It says, what does man gain from all his toil? Again, the word labor or work at which he toils under the sun. What does man gain from all of his work at which he works under the sun? Every word in that phrase is crucial and critical. 
the, the point is that the more we experience in life, the more we accomplish, the more nauseated we're going to get by it. Now, the word gain here in this verse, it's unique in the Bible. It's not used other places, and it is used 10 times in Ecclesiastes. And what it means is leftovers, leftovers. It's a word that relates to profit, but kind of in a different sort of way. What does man have left over from all of his work at which he works under the sun? This is uh, what's a permanent value after you've done everything, after all your effort, after all your business ventures, after you paid all your debts and it's all over, what do you have to show for it? Solomon's answer is that. That's what you have to show for it. What is left over a permanent value? Imagine I came to you and I said, hey, what are you doing next Friday night? Your first question to me should be why, okay? That's why you want to know and if i said well we're gonna go down to the roundabout and we're gonna drive around it for five hours it's gonna be amazing and you would say hard pass right yeah that's what you'd say I'm, I'm not gonna do that that sounds terrible what solomon is trying to get you to in this circular movement of these words is why don't you ask that question about your entire life not just friday night why aren't you asking that question about everything that comes into your life? Because it's natural to want to protect your life from stupidity, but we don't really protect ourselves that much because a lot of things we get involved in are stupid because, and we're just too dumb to begin to realize it. Ask the question, what is your life about? What is your life about? How do you know your life is not a waste? What are you going to accomplish in your life? What is going to go on after you? And if you don't ever stop to ask yourself that question, you're living on instinct and not in true wisdom. And what Solomon does throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is he will come in and he'll take all of our answers off the board before we can even say them. He deals with three common uh, answers in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Tim Keller calls them the answers of humanists and hedonists and the existentialist. Like the humanistic answer to this is, I'm here to make the world a better place. Okay? The hedonistic answer is someone who says, I'm here for pleasure, and so I'm going to try and get all the pleasure I can out of life and work. That's the point. And as existentialist says, well, life is meaningless, but uh, I don't want it to be senseless, and so I'm going to live in, with courage and morality in, in the face of the cruelty of life. Now, we may not use those answers, but really those are the things that we say. And I know this because I have done funerals. And typically at funerals, people will get up and they will say things like, this person made the world a better place. They will say that, as if we're trying to convince each other that a given life had meaning of some sort. And I'm not saying they didn't impact people around them, but we're always trying to convince ourselves that our lives have been enriched, that the world's enriched by this person's life, and therefore they had value and did not die in vain. What Solomon tells you in Ecclesiastes is that is utter nonsense. And it's supposed to be funny. We don't think it is because like, I'm so offended by that. But he's, it's meant to be funny. He points out that when it comes to human history, under the sun, where we live, our lives are insignificant when they are not found in something that is eternal. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. How many of you remember the names or what your great-great-grandparents did? Almost nobody, right? And they're your own great-great-grandparents. You're related to them. Can you imagine? Uh, Tim Keller actually points out in, in Les Mis, what happens towards the end is a college student, he's about to die at a barricade fighting for righteousness, and then he realizes, I'm going to die here. And so this song starts, Will the world remember you when you fall? Could it be your death means nothing at all? Is your life just one more lie? Like, am I just one more lie? You know what Solomon's answer is? Yep. That, that's his answer. Nobody's going to remember you 40 years from now. Even if you give $4 million to a college or to a hospital, they'll put your name on a plaque on the wall, and people walk by and read it and go, I don't know who that is, and they'll just keep going. No one's going to remember. 
Now, we should be a people who make a difference. We really should be. But we don't do that by focusing on man. We do it by focusing on Jesus and what he has done. We focus on the eternal. But humanists just focus on what's here and now. I'm going to feel better because I did this thing. But it really doesn't mean anything. When we bring the good news of God's salvation, he changes things. That goes on into eternity. The lives you touch with the gospel goes on forever. That's the beauty. Some people believe that this life is all there is, and so you should get all the pleasure out of it that you can. That's, that's a hedonistic answer. Uh, this can be for some people raising a family, hugging a child, falling in love, writing a piece of music. For Solomon, it got to the place of 700 wives and 300 concubines. But C.S. Lewis once said the problem with that is if just get my pleasure out of life, the problem with that philosophy is the only way you get to enjoy your life is to forcibly keep yourself from thinking about what actually comes after you, what the end actually is. It's kind of like a child who gets afraid and hides under the covers thinking nobody can see them, or an ostrich just sticks its head in the sand. Or my wife, she has these cats, and they're really big, and the dog gets all excited in the house sometimes, and the cats are like, ah, and they run away and try and hide. They can only get their head under the couch because they're too big to get the rest of their body under the couch. But they think they're safe. It's like, boom, the dog can't see me. The dog's like, ah, you know, I think it's funny. But I would, right? C.S. Lewis says, if this life is all that there is, nothing really matters, and everything really is meaningless. It's why Solomon is trying to get us to see the truth that what life actually is, there's more to life than what is just under the sun. And living just for pleasure doesn't give you meaning in life. As existentialists come along, like uh, people like Camus or Sartre, and they say, life is meaningless, but I will not be meaningless. The world might be senseless, but I will not be senseless. The world might be merciless, but I will show mercy. I'm going to find ways to live out in the, in the face of all these terrible things in the world in a way that honors who I am. It sounds very noble and brave in the face of extinction. Uh, Albert Camus actually once said that to live an authentic life is to live a life of absurdity. And what he means by that is he doesn't believe in God. So you become moral even though in his mind there aren't really any morals. Or you serve those who are in need even though there is no reason to. You stand for what's right even though there technically is no right or wrong. Because without God there is no standard for what is right and wrong. And if you have a standard for right and wrong, then where do you get that standard of justice and common sense and decency? Where do you get this straight line by which to judge everything around you as being crooked? If your brain is just an electromechanical field, then who are you to say that what Hitler did was wrong? Because maybe that's what he thought would give him pleasure or meaning in life. Where do we get a standard by which to judge the rest of the universe if there's only life under the sun? That's the question. And again, it's, it's very depressing. I don't want to steal next week's message, but Solomon gets really close to it. In verse 17, he says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. He says, I have been tried wisdom, and I tried being crazy in a studied way, like an intentional rebellion against senselessness of existence. And he says, there's no meaning there either. Solomon, as this philosopher, is pushing us to show us that there really, in the end, is no middle ground. Either there is a God who created us and sustains us and he brings righteousness and life that goes on after this one or everything is utter futility and there is nothing in the middle no matter how bad we want there to be. I mean, I don't know if you ever thought about this, that this modern secular mindset, how does it even work that says, yes, there's no God, yes, we're accidents, yes, we're going to annihilation, you're like, your origin's insignificant, your destiny's insignificant, but while we're here, let's work for human rights. It, it, How do you even think that every human being is valuable if God isn't even in the equation? 
Keller says this, people think Christians are, pe- are people who are naive. Are you kidding me? Look at the faith that takes. If my origin is insignificance and my destiny is insignificance, have the guts to admit your life is insignificant. And this is what Solomon is trying to move you towards, that idea. That without God, everything is meaningless. And we're going to keep coming back to this idea for the next four to six weeks because that's where Solomon wants us. He wants you to start in this place where you understand what he's trying to do. And so by the end of this, you're going to be like, oh, oh, this is so meaningless. Why did I come again this week? Oh, all right. But by the end of this, you're going to be where he wants us to be before we start moving on to other things in the book. So what part of what Solomon does, actually open your Bibles to John chapter 1 in the New Testament, John chapter 1. Part of what Solomon does is he asks all of these uncomfortable questions, which leads us to look at the rest of the scriptures to find the answers to the questions that he is asking. Now, in John 1.1, John starts off with this incredible verse. This is what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, John, he writes his gospel in what's known as a Greek philosophical framework. So he's also being philosophical in this. The word for word in John 1, 1 is a word called logos, okay? Logos, it's referring to Jesus. Now, Greek philosophers for centuries before Jesus would say, if we could find the logos of life, we would then find the meaning and what life was. They're always searching for this thing called the logos. Uh, it's, they, they would look at something that was made, and you look at the purpose for why it was made so you know what it was supposed to do. So they wanted to find that for them. What's, what's the logos? And so they argued for centuries about what this was, and then they became disillusioned because they couldn't find it, and they said, well, life is just meaningless. That's where the philosophers got to. There is no logos. It's all meaningless. And so John comes in. And he drops that bombshell. In the beginning was the word, the Logos. And the Logos was God. And the word was God. That's how he comes in and starts and steps into this. He says, guess what? There is a Logos to life. There is. And it's not a thing. And it's not an accomplishment. It is a truth that is a person. The Logos is not some abstract principle. The Logos is God come to earth in the person of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What he says is, when you know this one, and when you behold his glory and who he is, when you serve this one and you worship this one, you find the reason for life. And instead of nothing meaning anything, now everything can mean everything. And right now can actually count forever because either everything means everything or nothing means anything. I had this illustration of this. It's kind of interesting because Sean, the guy that leads music this morning, uh, his son Hurley, like at 3 a.m. this past week, he had this post-nasal nasal drip and, he was going to, and so he woke up and he was throwing up and all these things were going on. Now... Let me show you the differences in how you, how you could see this. Um, you get up at 3 a.m. with your child who's throwing up, and you start helping them out, and you get whatever's coming out of them all over you, whatever it is. You know, and you can look at this, and if you, if you are like an existential philosopher, and you would say, oh, this child's a chance pattern of matter. It's a result of a random collision of molecules, and this child's eventually going to die and rot, probably after I've died and rotted, but no one's going to remember it, and nothing this child do- does will ever come to anything, and no one's going to remember it. Or do you look at this child and do you say, this child is made in the image of God. This child is an immortal soul. This child, if he or she turns to the Lord, he or she will sit around the throne of God three billion years from now, laughing and loving and hugging and casting our crowns before him, lost in wonder and love and praise. That's the difference. That's the difference of a God who brings meaning into our lives. 
This could be anything that we do. Understanding the difference between everything, meaning everything from cleaning your house to raising your kids to friendships to your job, all of these things. Everything now can actually mean everything. If Jesus is our logos, we have splendor in the ordinary. The mundane of our lives gets to be shot through with glory because everything can mean everything. This really old document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and they say it like this. The question is this. What is the chief end of man? Why are you here? That's the question, right? The answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Those are beautiful words because it means that God moves us from meaninglessness into life. That's what God does. And when you look around you at the things in your life and you get so frustrated because nothing ever seems to work out, it's like, oh, this is meaningless. When you're in those places, you're exactly where Solomon wants you to be in Ecclesiastes because you get to look at that and say, oh, and then you understand what God has done to step into those places of our frustration into those places of meaninglessness to offer us new life again where everything that we go through, even those frustrating things, can actually mean everything. They can actually go on into eternity. This is why we talk about and share the gospel of who Jesus Christ is, the good news of his rescue of us, because when we share that, that goes on into eternity. And it is not meaningless, and it is not temporary. It is the hope that this world needs that is lost living life under the sun without him. And so we step into other people's lives like God has stepped into ours and we share that good news that everything can mean everything. This is one of the reasons that Element, every week we take you to a place and remind you of communion. We invite you to break a cracker like Christ's body was broken for us, to dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me because our lives do not have to be meaningless. Our lives can have purpose. Our lives, because of what God has done, everything that happens to us that has happened and will happen can mean everything. And it can go on into eternity. And we can share this good news because all the humanitarian things we want to do in the world may be good things and we should be involved in those. But the gospel, the good news of what God has done is what goes into eternity. You want to see somebody three, five, seven, nine billion years from now? You share the gospel. You talk about the good news of Jesus, that life isn't meaningless. Life can actually have purpose. And if you get to the place where you feel like it is, that is God calling you to himself, showing you what he is going to do to step into your life to rescue and save you. The band's going to come up. As I do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, they would love to pray. Maybe, maybe you're in a place today where you feel like a lot of things in your life is just meaningless, like it's a drudgery. You're constantly walking through all of these things and nothing makes a whole lot of sense. They would love to pray with you. They'd love to spend some time talking through those things and helping you to understand what God has done to rescue you, that everything can actually mean everything, and that everything that you have gone through in your life, that God can bring redemption and hope and purpose to those things. And that he has things in our lives to do. We have, been, we have been told that there are works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Not that doing those things makes God love us more, but God says, I love you and I'm going to give you purpose. And so I have things for you. And the big thing of that is talking about and sharing the good news of what God has done in his rescue of us from the meaninglessness of our lives. That he shows us and brings us hope and grace and goodness and we get to live out in that hope. 
There's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave us too much to us, giving us part of our worship. We do not pass the plate. It's a response to what he has done. There's food outside. Grab something to eat. Take some sermon notes. Maybe ask some people those questions that are in there. Talk about the difference of what you feel is meaningless versus how God can actually bring meaning to that. How we are always seeking and striving to find something new under the sun. And every time we do, it's not that new and it's not that cool. But what God has done in his rescue of us is something that was new. It was something that had never been seen. Even today, people cannot believe that God would rescue us the way that he did. That he would step into the midst of our sin and our anger and our pain to become one of us in the person of Christ, to go to the cross, to die for what separated us from God and us from one another, to rise from the grave, to bring us to new life. People still don't believe that a God could love us enough to do that. And yet our God did. And that is the good news of the gospel. And that is what we live out. And that is what goes on into eternity. And that is what brings meaning. And so if you're in a place today where you feel like I am just grinding through the gears and my life doesn't have a whole lot of meaning, I encourage you to pray with somebody and talk about the good news of the gospel and the hope and the life that God restores to us because he is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us consistently and constantly of your good news. Because so often we are a people who get so focused upon ourselves and the things that we're doing or the things that we want that we forget who you are. And sometimes we get caught up in causes or things that pull us away from who you are. And yet you come to us in those places and you speak words of hope and life and healing and grace and love and you call us back to yourself. And you send us out into this world in our understanding better of who you are so that we can live lives that tell people that everything can mean everything and that there is hope that we can live within because you have come to rescue us. And so I ask that today we would become a people who believe the things that you have spoken and believe the things that you have done and that we would trust you over the things in our own lives that we tend to put above you and that our lives would come into order and focus more clearly as we trust you to be who you said that you are and that we would then step out into this world and live lives that honor you and the message of your good news so that what we do would actually go on into eternity and would not be forgotten and it all comes down to your great rescue of us We thank you for your grace and hope given to us. Teach us to live that out in ways that bring you glory as we live in your joy. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.